Welcome back to the Kiwi Innovators. I am joined today by a very, very good and dear friend of mine, Sergeant Major Jason Kappen, United States Marine Corps, retired. Yes. <laughs> uh, officially retired, so I'm doing well. <laughs> I didn't think we'd, you know, I didn't think we would ever get there. To be... Well, I will tell you, 30 short years ago when we were sitting on the quarterdeck getting IT together, I didn't think we'd get here either, my friend. <laughs> so I've brought, usually I bring tech people on here. I've specifically brought Jason on here because Jason comes at it from the military after 30 years of military service and leading men and women in the military. He brings an aspect to the way he looks at leadership that I think is valuable on the technology side for businesses. I think, and I'm going to ask him about this, but I, I think he's had his nose rubbed in new technologies as they were forced upon him or hoisted upon him in the military. And we're, we're going to talk through some of that, but that's, I think his, his vision of leadership works across the spectrum and really provides the best the best outcomes for an organization, whether it's a public organization like the military or it's a private organization like a business. So without ado, Jason, welcome to the Kiwi Innovators podcast. I find it ironic that we're, talk we're talking on a New Zealand podcast and there's two Americans. <laughs> I know, right? Which is also pretty cool, though. I mean, because you know, we're talking about technology and innovation and, and kind of thinking outside of the box. And, you know, who'd have thought? We could be sitting down doing this kind of stuff, you know, in today's age. Uh, I mean, I'm super excited about it. Yeah. So with COVID, I know you retired back in May of 2020. This podcast will be going out in a couple of weeks, but, and I know that that impacted you. I mean, I was, I was deeply affected by the fact that I couldn't be for that, for that retirement. But in the last six months, you were saying that you've seen almost a sea change in the usage of remote video conferencing in the military. Is that correct? Oh, I, I, so I'll tell you, you know, there's a lot of bad things that have happened with COVID, but I tell you, there are some great shiny stars that are being hung out there with COVID. And one of which is, you know, what, what's the worst thing about work? You go into work, you're away from your family, you you know, you're, you're grinding out, trying to get your stuff done, and then you get home and you're typically tired, so you don't want to do things around the house or spend time with your wife or kids or whatever, and you're going to bed. COVID has shown us that you can do at least half of your work from home yeah. on the internet, you know, logging into your system from your remote device, being able to do paperwork wise, and then coming in when you have to do face-to-face -face meetings, but doing a lot of this stuff at home, yeah. which then allows you to sit there with your family, you know, and do work from home. You know, I, I just, I'm starting a new job next week. I'll be, be teaching high school kids. We're 100% online. So I'm going to be doing that from, you know, my house, yeah. trying to teach the next generation of leaders how to do it. You got and yourself, so, you know, you got yourself a things. whiteboard yet? I know. So I'm trying to hold back on that because you know, I'm new to this whole thing. So it's going to probably be a lot of, you know, working my way through it. Cause it is, you know, like you said, there's innovation forced on me for 30 years. I mean, I yeah. remember, you know, when we joined the Marine Corps. There was no such thing as cell phones. Yeah. Right. I mean, you had to take accountability to higher headquarters you gave it to a Marine and told them to run at the higher headquarters. And literally they ran it to the, the, you know, the higher base. Now everything's done technology. Yeah. Well, so, I, I, mean, I remember if we were going any place, we had to leave a phone number for where it yeah. was we were going. 
because and it was generally yeah. you know the hotel phone number or whatever it was we were staying because yeah we weren't cell phones and don't change your plans no don't say you're gonna go here and then don't be there because they get hold of you absolutely yeah and so that you know that's just one one thing you know and, and now you come full circle 30 years later and, and you know we're doing stuff here where you're you know i mean i i had before i left my last command we were doing sync meetings where people were you know, no more than four people to a group in different places throughout, whether it was at somebody's house or, yeah. you know, at somebody's office, you know, nowhere near where's building. That's, so that's, you know, to me is a great, you know, example of what this, you know, the shiny star you try to find a bit, you know, that has to do with this COVID. Yeah. Well, and, and so the Marine Corps has always been more adaptive than the other services. I'm not bagging on the other services. There are some great other services, but uh, my time 30 years ago, we did everything with duct tape and bailing wire to make anything work. So we always had to be adaptive. So I think the Marine Corps adopting and adapting as opposed uh, to maybe some of the larger forces that are like, no doctrine, we have to do it this way and, and, and move forward. I think is going to, it's going to make it harder, but the entire U S military is moving towards smaller units. So. Well, yeah, I don't remember if you, I don't know if you remember, but when we were in the school of infantry together, we used to go on hikes. We had a company gunny and his saying is stuck with me. And it said, the Marine Corps has done so much with so little for so long. We can do anything with almost nothing. Yeah. And that's exactly the mantra that we have. You figure it out, yeah. right? That's the, the one thing. And, it, and I'm like, I'm not going to bust into the services because every service has its place that it needs to be in the department Absolutely. of defense. Absolutely. You know, equally, you know, worthy of, of the title of U.S. service member. Yeah. Uh, but I will tell you, the one thing great about the Marine Corps is we've just figured out, here's this new thing. Go figure out how to make it work. Yeah. And we're going to figure out how to make it work. We're going to figure out how to adapt it to where it's going to make it advantageous to us. Yeah. Well, I, re- I, I remember there was an NCO required reading, a message for Garcia. It might have been a Lance Corporal reading, yeah. required reading. But I, that embodies it. It's... Here's here's a message for Garcia. I'm not going to tell you how to get there because I'm too busy. Get it to him in in Cuba. Just go. Just figure it out. That's right. Yeah. One of, yeah. I, I still to this day have uh, my junior Marines read that book yeah. because it's a, it's a great insight to what you need to think about as a as a junior Marine. Yeah. You know, you, you're going to get told to do something, and it's not going to have a lot of guidance. Yeah. Hey, I need this done. Okay, how do I do it? I don't have time to explain that. That's right. Figure it out, and then that's what they're going to have to do. That's right. <laughs> and, the, and the successful Marines, you know, the people that are successful in business, they're going to figure out how to do but, this. That's right. And and I really, you know, the, the video Zoom meeting you did on Ask a Vet, which I'm going to link this podcast through because I thought it was brilliant, and I'm now following them. And I, I think what they're doing I think is great. I wish I had had some of that when I got out of the military um, back in 94. But you made a comment that, Yes, you want the Marines, you want those junior people, you want those junior business people to be able to give them an outcome that you need them to go get, and they're just going to do it. But you're also there that if they hit a wall that they just can't get past, you're there to provide some help and guidance and assistance, even if it's just suggestions about directions to go. And I think that was a brilliant way to look at it and approach it. Yeah, and you you said it great with that too. You know, the problem is is that you know, a lot of times leaders will say, Andy, this, this task done. Here it is. And they come and get me when it's done, right? I don't need this here or see from you again until it's done. Yeah. Well, if you're brand new to get this task done and you hit a stumbling point, 
or you're at a crossroads and says, okay, well, I can either go, you know, this way, which isn't exactly what he wants, or that way, which isn't exactly what he wants, and, and I'm not sure what to do. And then, you know, you don't have the confidence as that person to come up and talk to the leader and say, hey, you know, which way do you want me to go? Then yeah. you're a terrible leader. Yeah. Like, you know, you have to be there to give rudder steers. You have to be there to, you know, to instill the confidence that, hey, you're doing a good job. You know, I, I know that it's a difficult, you know, path you're hoeing, but keep going because you're going in the right direction for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and it really is, I've, I've, in the last probably 10 years, and I don't, you know, in business, you never saw this from me because you and I never worked together outside of the military, but I think you saw it in the military. I'm not the guy that wants to be in charge. I, I'm the guy that wants to go do whatever the thing is that needs to be done. But what I've seen in the last probably 10 years is the difference between a manager and a leader is is the leader and creates the environment so that the people can get the job done. Now, whether that's empowering them, whether that's guiding them, whether that's just giving them a task and walking away, it's all about, the leader is all about making that environment so people can be successful. The manager is about logging tasks that people are doing and measuring how and when they do it. And they're two completely different functions. And when I was younger, I mixed the two because most leaders are also there tend to be managers in leadership positions. It's very rare that you find a leader. And so I had always mashed those two together. I have no desire to put my hand on somebody and say, I need you to do this and I'm going to stand over you and make sure you're doing it. But I actually enjoy creating environments for people to be successful. And did you see that in the military, the difference between, you know, managers and good leaders and the growth of people? Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, I think where it starts is, so nobody's ever born, not nobody, very few people are born as natural leader. They just are gifted that they, you know, they wake up from the day of inception and understand how to lead, right? You work at it. It's like a craft, you know, you've got to perfect it, figure out what works for you and all that stuff. So I think where I saw it a lot at, and I still see it a lot at, is the brand new NCO, the first real tier of leader in the marine corps yeah so what are they used to doing all right manager do it's going to supervise the task right Mm -hmm. they're going to kind of micromanage that task because they're familiar with how they get the task done they're going to you know quantifiably determine the outcomes of the task and stuff like that they're learning how to be a manager yeah so you're going to see that now hopefully if they've got good mentors and they read a little bit and they see that they're going to understand that they need to shift from management to leadership and do what you're talking about, which is absolutely incredible. When you get it, when you get an organization that you have servant leaders that are right there in the mix, helping the junior, whatever they are, whether it's a business or a military, get the job done or, you know, figure out how to make this thing work or that thing compatible with the other thing. That's incredible. And it makes an organization so powerful because then you get people that want to gravitate to your organization, right? They see the things you got going on. Like, why are they always smiling? Why are they happy? Why do they come into work and stay until the job's done? Not begrudgingly because of a paycheck, but because they genuinely want to be a bit, make that team better. That's where you really get success. Yeah. And, and the organizations tend to be more flexible. One of the things I've noticed is, is that when, when you have nothing but managers, you tend to be very rigid and you're not able to adapt to new situations. Whereas a, because the leader is not so mandated in their thinking about how they need to do stuff, and they're more focused on how do they build that environment, how they lead their people to be able to get the outcomes, 
they tend to be much more flexible in what the what it is that they're doing. Well, and also, you know, if you're leading at ground level and you're kind of listening, seeing how projects are done, and and a problem comes up, you can quickly make an yeah. adjustment, yeah. right? Where if you're a manager, you know, you're not there at, at the at the ground level. You're at the end of the day. All right, what'd you do today? Well, yeah. why why did at nine o'clock this morning you stop working? Well, because I, I couldn't figure out what to do past this hurdle. Your yeah. ops to the right. It, it is not very flexible, and it is very rigid component when you got a bunch of managers in charge. So I said when we kicked this thing off that that I really saw you as that leader and, and based on what I, when I worked with you in the military, but also since then seeing you as a leader of men. So let's, let's go back a little bit. What's, so I know it, but what's your origin story? Where, you know, what, what does your 30 year career in the Marine Corps look like to you looking back on it now? Well, so, you know, I, I get asked this question. So the last real exciting thing that I did in the Marine Corps was I was the head instructor for a corporal's course. So every month I got the brand new promoted corporals and I got to do a month long course with them to get them ready to be the first step of leaders. And they ask that all the time. Hey, you know what, you know, why are you standing up here as the sergeant major of Marine Corps Station Fatima? You know, you know, the senior enlisted on this base. And so, you know, I get a great fond memories that go back and think about you know 1990 where were we at yeah we're sitting in san diego right? yeah. sweating our butts off uh, getting out for things that clearly were probably mostly our fault and some weren't you know and then you know from there we got very lucky and, and uh and, you know i say lucky because i view the marine corps kind of like a basketball game right so if you do basketball practice and then the game comes up you don't want to sit in the bench right yeah. you want to go play in the game so the same thing Marine Corps. I don't want to practice war, and then when war comes, I'm sitting on the bench. So we got very fortunate. You know, we went right to Desert Storm. Yep. Uh, you know, and then came back from Desert Storm. I, I got very lucky because I volunteered to go on a mew. And when I was on the mew, we went to a place called Somalia because a gentleman named Michael Durant got shot down in his Blackhawk. Yep. And uh, so we had to go there and do some stuff to get him released from uh, from the warlords there. You know, and that I so I did that. Me, we went up and uh, hung around Bosnia and Herzegovina for a little while doing their ethnic cleansing stuff to try and stop that going on. And then I transferred from there and I went to a, a test director where I got to test out the new weapon systems for the Marine Corps, which is really cool. And then because it was on an army base, I didn't feel like I was, you know, a Marine at times. So I volunteered, went to the drill field. And, uh, to and be a hold, hold on, and and you married one of those army. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did find, uh, I found, and I converted her to be, you know, more Marine Army, which was good. And then we went to the, you know, went to the drill field and, and spent a, a tour there. And then I went to a light armored infantry in Camp Pendleton. I spent about four years up there. And then uh, that was during the height of OIF. And uh, so they said, hey, if you're, you know, due for orders and you've been on the drill field, we're going to go ahead and volunteer you to go back down and be a drill instructor again. So I got uh, volunteered to go back down and do another tour on the drill field, which was actually really fun because I got to do the higher level, you know, yeah. I got to be the drill master and the chief drill instructor and stuff like that. And then I got selected the first sergeant. And so I asked my wife, I said, hey, listen, you know, I've drug you around this Marine Corps wherever I wanted to go to get promoted. You know, so where do you want to go? And she's like, I would love to be close to my family on the East Coast. So I said, all right. So I told the monitor I want to go anywhere on the East Coast. And he sent me to Quantico. And I was like, well, okay. I didn't envision Quantico, but I guess it's a good choice. 
And uh, so I got to spend three years at the officer candidate school. And I will tell you that that is the premier leadership academy in the Marine Corps. It teaches you, you know, how to lead from the ground level up. And I, I learned some really great tools for leadership there. Yeah. And then from there, I went down to, uh, I, I moved down to an infantry battalion just in time to get go to, go to Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. So I hung out down there with him for a while. And then I went to Afghanistan. Uh, my driver decided it would be a good idea to drive over an IED. And uh, so we blew up, uh, we hit a 110-pound IED, which is not fun. But, I mean, I have all my fingers and toes, so just minor problems with uh, vertigo and stuff like that. But all good. And then after that, I was like, you know what? I've been in the Marine Corps for about 23 years at this time. I think it's time for me to go figure out what this air wing is. So I went to an F-18 squadron, and uh, which was amazing. Talk, talk about I, a change. Became the first deployed. Talk about a change in oh, technology from. Yeah, was, <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, because you can, you can take a grunt and go anywhere. Yeah. Like, dirt doesn't affect you. You can't take an F-18 park in the middle of a field somewhere. It's no. got to be by an airport, which has hotels. So, so when I had to go camping. I would go camping at a hotel. So that's not a. <laughs> It's not a terrible thing to no, do, I'll no. tell you. I could live that. And then I did a good job with that, and they asked me to, to take over as the first ever deployed F-35 sergeant major. Oh, nice. So I did that for about two years, and you talk about technology, that's the brand-new fifth-generation you know, jet the Marine Corps has, and that thing is amazing. And then from there, I asked if I could uh, take over as the uh, the base sergeant major for FATEMA. Yep. So I did that for a couple of years, and then for about the last nine months, they're like, hey, we need you to come up and be the Marine Corps installation specific sergeant major. So that's what I did. So we've alluded to the fact that you and I might have been in the Marine Corps at the same time, at least near the same place. And you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong in my remembrance here, but I, I believe you and I were both in San Diego at boot camp at the same time. Both of us Correct. went. Both of us went to MCT in Pendleton and School of Infantry in Pendleton. Both of us went to LAV School in Pendleton, and then both of us were sent to Second. At that time, I, th- I believe it was LAI. Was it yeah. LAI or yeah, yeah. Uh, it's LAI at Camp Lejeune? So both of us got transferred to Camp Lejeune, and and both of us went over to. Saudi Arabia for desert at that time in desert shield. And then it became desert storm. And both of us were stationed in camp Lejeune for the whole four years that I was in. I think you transferred to Yuma the last year I was in, I was at camp Lejeune. Does that sound right? I think I, yeah, I think I left about four months before you were able to be the smart one and go to college. Yeah. And then I, I went and hurt myself throughout the, the dirt and mud and yeah. stuff. So. You, you, yeah, you, yeah, for sure. You say smart one. I've never finished. I never finished that degree. <laughs> I got. I got but, but yeah. <laughs> there's some. There's amazing people right now that will tell you that a college degree isn't necessary. What's necessary is being innovative, mm. right? Doing things that are a passion for you. Yeah. And just kind of finding out where you can fit in to get and be successful. Oh, oh absolutely. Really yeah. How did you get successful? I'll never forget the fact that your dad did you a solid and sent you a Microsoft NT book when we were in Desert Storm for you to read over there. And you read that like it was freaking, like you owed somebody money to get through it. I remember all the time watching you read that thing. And I was like, what is this clown doing? But look what it's done for you, my friend. And that's all, that's what reading does for you. 
Uh, you know, you're right. And, and it was funny. I was just on the conversation. I was having a conversation with the head of a data analytics division. And he's like, I, that's a lot of reading that you just listed off. And I was like, yeah, yeah it's what I do for fun as I read white papers. Yeah. <laughs> so, Which is, I mean, but, you know, you talk to people that are successful, right? That yeah. Done, I mean, what do you average? Probably a book a week at least, right? You know, I I don't get a full book. What I do is I've now transitioned in the last five years because the breadth of stuff that I cover is now massive. I mean, when I was just doing networking, yeah, yeah. yeah I was reading probably a book or two a week, but I cover almost all aspects of technology. And it's it's so difficult for me to stay across everything. What I do is, is I listen to podcasts. There are about 20 of them. God help me. Yes. I read about one white paper a month. And I read, I, I follow several blogs that just kind of summarize white papers for me. I've been diving real deep into quantum. uh, Go ahead. You know, we're doing this, this podcast here talking about innovation, right? Yeah. A podcast is a great example of it. Absolutely. Like, you know, there's no better opportunity. When I was driving, like I had a 30 minute drive to and from work every day, right? So that's an hour of wasted time that I could listen to music or I could tune out, do whatever, or it's an hour that I can throw a book in yeah, or I can throw a podcast in and hear about different things going on. So for you to transition to that is absolutely freaking amazing because like I, you know, it took me a long time. I mean, I only really started getting a podcast about three years ago, probably Yeah, maybe where I was when I had my commute. But before that it was, I would just read. Yeah. And that's just, that's so archaic. Well, yeah, and, and the time, so the time for new technologies to, to get rolled out is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, right? The time to publish and print a book is not getting any shorter. No. So if you want to stay up on what's latest and greatest within the last six months, you're not reading a book. You might be reading a white paper online. I can publish a white paper online in about three months. But if you want to know about, you know, an announcement from Apple or Microsoft or AWS or something, the only place you get that is in a blog or in a podcast. There's there's no other way to stay stay on top of those technologies. That's right, because by the time a book would get published, the technology is already over and done with. Yeah, they're completely it's, gone. We're three after that. And, and, I, and I really struggle because universities are only now starting to, to try and solve that because most of their textbooks at a minimum, are two years old. Right. And so the things they're talking about in their textbooks may not even apply anymore. So, yeah, look, the United States Marine Corps is is a large organization, smaller than the other services, but it's still a large organization, and it has lots of divisions that do lots of outcomes. Air Wing has one outcome. Infantry has another outcome. You know, training has another outcome. But that progression across that 30 years... I mean, we talked about you going to the air wing and seeing this new technology, but did you see as a leader of, you know, in a staff NCO all the way up, you get to see all the admin stuff on the back. And I remember in 94, as I was transitioning out, they were still using horrible data entry things in the admin in the S1 shop and even in the S2 shop with the intelligence. They they were terrible technologies. I mean, they were just one step above a typewriter was what they were using. Have you seen that change over the last 30 years? Yeah, so I'll tell you what really helped the military in general was uh, OIF and OEF. 
right? Because you don't have the ability to roll in with antiquated technologies and hope that you're going to fight a modern war. And so all of that was able, you know, through Congress and everybody else giving us the budget to be able to figure out how to get more current solutions to technologies. So, yeah, you know, up until really 2003-ish, we were still using probably about the same system that you had yeah. when you before you got out, which was, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's just barely above that. Now, with collaboration with the different partners of technology, I mean, we're using, like, real-time, real now current modern solutions to administration stuff or or different devices in the intel community and all this other stuff because we're able to do that because we're not listening or going off of the old school of thought which was hey we bought this in 1973 and it's 1999 we still don't have our money worth out of it well what does the old saying go an army travels on its stomach the logistic just the logistics portion of the Marine Corps and how it gets beans and bullets and band-aids to the places that it needs to be able to do stuff. I mean, that was done on a clipboard when I got out all the way up to the ordering was done on a clipboard. So as the technology changed and improved, say since 2003, did the training of Marines change with it? Well, so I will tell you that's really, to me is the most exciting part of it. So we've changed, like you wouldn't even recognize recruit training anymore. It, I mean, so I did I did two different tours on the drill field yeah. and they were four years apart. So I, I left the drill field in, 90, in 2001, I left the drill field and I went back in 2004. Yeah. So it was late, so I had about four, almost four years. It was night and day different between when I had left and when I came back the second time. Just because of that. I mean, we're teaching whole different ways on leadership. I mean, some of the stuff's the same. You're not going to, you know, you're not changing up how you left, right, left, yeah, or yeah. how you run, right? But you're changing up the way that you communicate in combat or the way that you shoot and move or, yeah. or whatever you're doing. There's a lot of things that that innovation has done that's modernized it, absolutely. And then you go on to follow on schools, right? Like, I will tell you, you know, offensive to me. When I first came in, I was a knucklehead, right? Like a lot of my Marine peer groups were didn't have high school graduations, yeah. like didn't have high school educations. They were not the sharpest sticks in the tool, and that's it is what it is. We don't accept Marines anymore that don't have a high school ed- education. Yeah. If you, you know, like if you're a GED, it's hard to get in the military in any of the services yeah. because that's just the level that we're at. I mean, the education you need to understand the, the modern warfare tools and designs is night day different than where we started. And, and it, so it excites me because, you know, like, like I got to see the fifth generation aircraft come out in the F-35 and the things yeah. that they're doing. And just knowing that that, you know, that future technology is already here and there's already Marines that are very smart and very skilled working on that. It just, you know, that we're going to be successful and stick around for yeah. you know, a long time after this. So obviously I do a lot of technology consulting. And one of the things I talk about is adopting new technologies and, and getting the business outcomes. But there's a part of the Marine Corps that's all about the men. And, and the reality is, is that you, the men and women in the Marine Corps, they are the ones that get it done. Everything else is just support. I mean, I don't know if you and I had ever talked about this, but when I was out at reconnaissance, I was at a bar one night and um, somebody made a comment about me being out at recon. And I was like, no, 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 no. Reconnaissance is to support the infantry. The infantry is the purpose of the Marine Corps. Everything else is support 
for the infantry. Yeah. And that's, and I truly believe that. And the guys out at recon believe that as well. So, but there's the technology changes to get organizational outcomes in the Marine Corps. Were you seeing better outcomes? Because because uh, what I was seeing in ninety to ninety four was, if we wanted better outcomes, we threw more people at it. Yeah, no, that's not the the, the case anymore. Okay. Again, I, I would tell you, you know, modern technology has changed a lot of the outcomes. I mean, we've revamped. You know, back in the day, we used to have thirteen man squad or thirteen woman squads. Yeah, right? yeah. They've changed it now. You know, it's not thirteen anymore. You know, there's different setups now where you you base the amount of people you're taking out of project based on what the problem is. Yeah. So we're very flexible about that. And, you know, that takes, you know, the current commandant is, is one of the most innovative leaders that I've ever listened to talk or read point papers from because he is changing how the Marine Corps is going into the future. I mean, he is going against things that are like ingrained in the way that we used to be because he sees that if we keep going down the old path, we're going to be dinosaurs yeah. and we're going to be left behind and it's not going to happen. And so I think, you know, like you said, you know, the Marine Corps is a people business. Yeah. When we stop getting people into it, the Marine Corps is going to stop existing. Yeah. And so how do you get the most out of your people without burning them out? You, know, you have to find the small advantages you can take from whatever it is, your innovative products, and bring them in to help supplement and augment the warfighter. Yeah. Well, and, and the expectation of those Marines is different than when you and I went in. I mean... I don't think that unless you were going in as a radio technician when you and I went into the service, that would be, that was no expectation that I would ever touch a computer when I was in the service. Oh yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous the amount of like you're not like brand new, brand new marine coming out of boot camp and going to SOI is going to get a clearance and is going to get an ID uh, an ID fix so that he can get his email address right away. Yeah, and he will have email address and the ability to receive emails from you know the commandant sends out point papers to all hands you know commanding general send out point papers so the you're talking months after joining the marine corps yeah. they're getting an email they can log in and check that stuff out i remember you know it 98 so when i was on the drill field that's the first time that i really did anything in the marine corps with a computer yeah i i, I was trying i was trying to think i think our entire battalion had one email address yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't remember because at that time, I mean, I was just, you know, junior Marine. So I never, I ne- like you said, I never had a need to get on a computer. I never yeah. did any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, I remember, you know, when we were our first duty station, I went and took an MCI called MIMS because that was like, that was the first way to order parts. And you could actually yeah. log in and, you know, send out and, fill out and get the paper trail for yeah. your parts being ordered. And it had a, it had a, a blowout diagram of the... So you could pick the part that you, yeah, I remember seeing that. I, I was at, I was in our boat shop one yeah, time and, had, and and seeing it. Yeah. And then you had to fill I mean, it was just a night, but the paperwork for that, when I first joined, I mean, you had to fill like 11 pieces of paper in, in triplicate to get something on order. And then when you turned it in, it was mailed in. Yeah. It wasn't like you, you know, you, you, you might be able to, if you're on a big base, like campus, you could run it down to the third echelon or fourth echelon maintenance and, and try to order it from there. But it wasn't, I mean, most part it's getting mailed. Yeah. Right. And then it shows up. So, I mean, how long is it, you know, fast is getting, you know, delivered on that. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was incredible that I think about it now, right? Like people talk to me, like the corpus course, Hey, what is the biggest, you know, difference between, you know, the modern Marine Corps right now and back then. 
and and I, you know technology is is the biggest difference because when we came in it was simple hey go tell a battalion how many people we have all right you put your te- your little go fasters on and you ran a battalion yeah you don't do that anymore if i but think about back in the day if we wanted to go to the px and you messed around the px you could be gone for two hours and people would have no idea where you're at oh yeah 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 well and and, and when you went to the chow hall you gave them your social security number and they wrote it into a book with a pencil. Yeah, and at the end of the month they did reconciliation and then that's what you got charged. Yeah. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So now you go to the your ID card, you scan it, and it comes over. Just, just, uh, those, those little things that are buying time back to Marines that, that is exactly what we're talking about now. Innovation and how you need to think, how can I buy decision space? How can I give the leader of my organization more time to think about a problem, solve a problem, and get ahead of the problem? And, and give him the information he needed to, to be able to make a decision. What? So f- for you, you've made a – and I think you and I have talked about this. Depending on the – it doesn't matter what duty station. You have made a career out of building leaders in the Marine Corps. I mean, you might take that as me being a little bit too grandiose about what it is, but I truly believe that based on the path that you took and the direction you took and the choices you made, that's what you did. You made a place for Marines to become bigger and better and become great leaders within their organization. For you, what was the best tools? What was the best things that you had to be able to be successful at doing that? So, so part of the success that I've had to become the leader that I am is based off of the inconsistency and the lack of help that I had as a junior leader. Like we go back to, you know, when we first came in, it was, it was swim or drown. Yeah. You're a leader now, figure it out. Yeah. And so it took a lot for me. Like I read, I don't know if you remember how much I read. I read everything. Like I read like it was a mission. Because I didn't know how to lead. And I wanted to make sure that I was not doing a disservice to the Marines that I was in charge of. So what I did is I learned all of that that I had. And I said, all right, this is how I'm going to change things. I'm going to do mentorship councils where I'm sitting down with my brand new leaders and kind of give them, you know, the, the here's what it takes. I call it NCO ship. It's a class I give. Hey, here's what it is to be an NCO. Here's kind of the things you need to do. And then what I do is I have an open door legitimate policy that I don't care however you need to communicate with me or ask me a question I am going to find a way to get you an answer because the big scheme of things you know I've been in for a a while I can tell you all the problems I had that you don't have to experience because I've experienced them for you so rather than you hit the roadblock that I had to hit I want to help you get around it and then what I do by that, you know, is I build their confidence on on being leaders, right? Like, I am not a fan of micromanaging. Yeah. I'm not a fan of treating people like they're three years old and telling them this is the first thing you're going to do. Okay, now you can move them to step two. I want to give you a project, and I want to give you the kind of left and right lateral limits of the project. I use this as a great example when I'm talking to my new NCOs. I'm going to tell you to build me a house. What would that mean to you? I'm going to, I don't know, three bedrooms, two baths, a little car garage. Okay, what would it mean to somebody else? Maybe it's four bedrooms and three baths. I'm not asking for the amount of bedrooms. If I needed a two-bedroom, one-bath house built, I'm going to tell you to build me a two-bedroom, one-bath house. But if I don't, I just need a house built, then I'm going to give you the latitude to look at the land that you've got, 
figure out how big of a house you want to put on it and build me a house. Because at the end of the day, what did I ask for? A house. Yeah, a house. And then what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to come in and ridicule you because you built a three-bedroom house when in my mind I wanted you to build a four-bedroom house. Yeah. But I didn't articulate that to you. And I think that's more important than people understand is allowing people the decision, the ability to make a decision to own their decision and then not get ridiculed when they make a decision that may or may not be in line with what your decision is. Yeah. I tell people all the time, and it's not, it doesn't have to be Jason Cabin's way. Yeah. It has to be the Marine Corps way. Yeah. And there's a lot of latitude to the left and right to how the Marine Corps is. It's, it doesn't have to be in my perfect niche because if it's not illegal, immoral, unethical, unjust, or unsafe, then let's give it a try. And if it fails and nobody dies, okay, well, let's reset and try it again. I, it's interesting. So, I mean, you and I go back for 30 years, but you and I got to the same place in our thinking about this. And it's really interesting because I, I do a lot of consulting work and, and I go, I go, look, you have to, you have to take the fear away from your people to be able to make a decision. If nobody has the authority or the ability to make any decisions, then you're not going to get anything done. If everything has to go to the CEO or the CIO within an organization before any decision can be considered legitimate, or there's 11 or 13 different governance boards that everybody has to sign off on everything before anything is allowed to be done, you can't get anything done. And that means that in the lack of making a decision you will decide to keep doing things the way that you've been doing them that may not be optimized for your business outcomes. And I'm using business well, language, yeah. but I'm use, I'm saying the exact same thing that you were saying, is you've got to free those people up to be able to fail, to be able to make yeah. decisions, to be able to f feel free to make a decision that they're not going to get called out on the carpet for because they get it wrong or because they don't. it's not perfectly aligned to what the leader said because he had a vision in his head that he didn't communicate down. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Well, the other problem, you talk about the speed of technology and the speed of getting stuff done. If every decision has to be made by one person, the CEO, the CIO, whatever it is, then how long is it going to take for a decision to get made? Yeah, exactly. And, and so if you're, if you're waiting on building something, for instance, every minute that is not getting built, the people are just standing around is wasted money. That's right. Why would you want to... Like, why would you not give the ability and say, hey, look, this is what I want built. Build me a house. All right. I can look at the land as the, as the middle manager. I should be able to look at the plot of land that I have and realize that I want to maximize the usage so I can build without violating code. I can build a four-bedroom, three-and-a-half bath house, and I can get it done successfully. Yeah. And then, you know, if I'm the guy or the gal that's in charge and I didn't want a four-bedroom, I wanted a pool, well, you should have mentioned that. Right, you should have given that guidance off the get go, and not wait for them to say, "Okay, here's what I want to do," because now you're just slowing the process down. That's right, and then it's going to get people frustrated. And you've read it and seen it as much as I do. Why do people quit businesses? It's not because of the business; it's because of the people they work for, yeah, and the people they work with. Yeah. So, yeah, looking back over your last thirty years, and looking forward thirty years in the Marine Corps, where? Where do you see that technology changing within the Marine Corps? I mean, is it going to continue down the path it's going? Or are we going to see some leaps or jumps? I mean, the U.S. now has a Space Force. You and I chatted about the idea of a Space Force back in 93. Yeah. So the U.S. now has a Space Force. 
the roles and environments that the Marine Corps operates in have been changing over the last 30 years. The technology's changed. I mean, a fifth generation uh, attack fighter is maybe the last attack fighter the Marine Corps has if they go to nothing yeah, but because... uh, drones. Right. So, so where do the... I, I'll, I'll go back to this. The first 20 years that I was in the Marine Corps, we were very slow to make changes. Yeah. Like it was a, I'm running in tar is how fast changes got done, right? It ain't happening very fast. Yeah. The last 10 years, great people have come up with innovative products that have quickly hit the street and have made changes in the positive way the Marine Corps and the military in general is getting used and, and they're getting stuff done. I do not believe that there's any way that we will ever go back to the antiquated way that it was where you're keeping a system just because you bought the system and you're not sure if you've got the money worth out of it. We're always going to adapt now. And it's even faster now because innovation and technology is advancing so fast. So I think that, you know, 30 years from now, you're going to see the same thing you saw in the last 10 years. When something new comes out of the street, the military is going to figure it out. It's going to get it going and it's going to implement it to help us, you know, to get to whatever objective we're trying to do. And so I think that there's going to be 90 different things. Absolutely. I would have never have guessed 30 years ago that we would be talking on a phone in my hand that is more powerful than a computer sitting in our battalion, right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. What's it going to be in 30 years from now? Can't even guess. But I will tell you, if an organization wants to survive, if they want to continue being relevant, they have got to adjust at the speed of technology where they're going to fall off and be irrelevant. And so I would hope that that's what the Marine Corps is going to do. They're going to realize that we're adjusting and adapting as things come out, and we're going to continue doing that so that we're still relevant in 30 years. I mean, we've been doing it for 243 years, so yeah. might as well keep it on for another 243. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because I have kind of a mantra that either you disrupt your organization internally or somebody's going to come in from outside and disrupt you, and that may mean putting you out of business. But I've had a lot of people in the public sector that have pushed back on me and said, no, 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 we have guaranteed customers. We're the public sector. We we don't have external disruptions. But listening to you talk, you believe there are disruptions that come to even a public organization like the Marine Corps. Because if the Marine Corps doesn't adapt and change, would one of the other services take that, you know, whatever the role is that in the particular area that they're doing and take over it and, and then the Marine Corps gets smaller and smaller and smaller and becomes irrelevant? I mean... If they don't change, is that a possibility? Well, you know, I can't talk to whether or not they would close down services, but you think about this, right? You're talking about, a, you know, a half a billion dollar defense budget. Yeah. Going spread across four services. If it was only three different services, your budget goes up. That's right. So if you're able to do something that another service isn't doing because they want to adapt to it, then why would you keep funding the service that's not adapting to yeah. it? So there could absolutely be a possibility. I find it funny. You you talk about, well, we're the public sector, so we'll never run out of customers. You absolutely run out of customers. Think of how many businesses have gone out of business because they didn't change their model. And they think that they're not going to make a lot of money or whatever. I mean, you think of COVID. I got a good friend of mine that's in Australia, and he has a plant store, right? So about December, he decided it would be a good idea to maybe put his product online so that it could maybe generate a little bit of business. Yep. A couple months later, COVID hit. He's the number one seller right now for any kind of that stuff in Australia. 
because he went online before anybody else. Yeah. And because he changed and adapted. He's in public business too. He's always got customers because yeah. who doesn't want to spruce up their yard oh, or absolutely. have flowers or whatever it is. Absolutely. When you don't think that you can change to be better, then you've already failed. Yeah. Well, I do have one bonus question for you. So the bonus yes. question, the bonus question. So the bonus question. So, so under the Obama administration, he started a website where citizens could log in and make suggestions to the government, and then other citizens could vote on that. And if if enough people voted on something, the government would go and take a look at it and see if it made sense to do it. Someone proposed that the U.S. government should build the Death Star. It got twenty five thousand votes. And the Obama administration actually spent a little bit of money. I, I, I don't I remember seeing the budget item. It was less than $10,000. But they went and investigated what it would take to build the Death Star. And they decided not to do it because the budget would be too large. And they couldn't. there's no way they could fund building the Death Star. But assuming money was no object, would you have had them build the Death Star? Absolutely not. Right. <laughs> Here's the problem, right? Think, think about one thing that technology has done more than anything. It's made the world a small place, right? Yeah. I don't know the exact count of countries there are, but well over 150 countries, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about one country would have the ultimate power to rule over all of the countries. That's not right. Yeah. You know, people in Canada, Nigeria, you know, England, wherever it is, they need they have the same rights to, to run their land, their country, as we do. If yeah. we had that and you had the ability to just erase people like no i don't think that'd be a good thing because then you know i i think that that is way too much power for one country to have and i just think it'd be a bad idea so i would vote no okay okay also i did get asked one on a podcast i asked that question and he said are you talking about the first death star or the second death star (laughs) so the one that had the the one that had the flaw in it that somebody could shoot a missile into the exhaust port or the one that you had to destroy from inside the, the Death Star. So, yeah, it was a, it was kind of an interesting question. So That is also a good follow question. So, <laughs> so Jason, I, I don't know how to thank you enough. I Your insight, you really have had the opportunity to, to really understand and dive deep on leadership and the value and outcomes, the good outcomes that come from good leadership and and from bad leadership. And I really respect and I seek out your guidance when it comes to leadership because you are, you, you not, are not just a leader of men. You train people to become leaders of men. And you talked earlier about how, you know, leaders aren't born. Jason, even successful leaders can't necessarily teach other people how to be leaders. So the ability that you have to be able to do that and be successful, I don't know how to, I don't know how to praise you enough for having that ability. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It is always a pleasure hanging out with you, my friend. And I'm glad that I could, you know, say a couple words here and there that might help spark somebody's interest in something and and maybe help them you know change an organization for the better yeah no absolutely and that's that's what it is i i used to think that it was technology that would transform businesses and there's a technology component to it but people change businesses and people adapt businesses and people make businesses better and disrupt businesses just like in the marine corps it's it's a people business no matter what you're selling it's still a people business and so being able to lead is is that really great thing 
Well, that was an awesome talk. Getting to talk to Sergeant Major Cappen. I was there in the beginning, so I'm going to call him Jason Cappen. He's also the godfather to my children and the namesake for my oldest son. So his insight into leadership and the training of leaders and the making of leaders and what he's done for the last 30 years in the Marine Corps is it's a great example of what can be done when someone puts their mind to doing it and getting the best outcomes for what they're trying to do. I'll put the links, a bunch of links in the podcast notes. And as always, please let me know what you think. If you're interested in coming on the podcast, reach out to me. I've just added myself to Matchmaker, both on the guest side and the podcast side. So I'm always open to bringing new people on. And hopefully I can start doing this a little bit more regularly now that I have some time that I can put to it. As always, thank you very much.